0: Welcome, Julie Carbo, to the third installment of the Ducca Minerva podcast. We're really happy to have you. Rather than go through your background, read your CV, I wonder if you might just tell us a bit about yourself, the highlights of your career, what you think the highlights of your career have been to this point, where you come from. I should note for listeners that if you're interested in Julie's a little bit more personal background of julie she has a fascinating discussion with brent Steele on the hate seed scholar in which she reveals that she has had not one but two near death experiences if i recall correctly so julie's had a much more harrowing life than most of us so julie tell us about yourself a little bit
1: okay i will um first to say thank you jared for inviting me to be on this i think it's a I think it's a great thing you're doing. I think the podcast is a really good idea, and I hope you got get a lot of listeners. Um, Yeah, so a little bit about me. I was uh, born in the U.S. in Kansas, in Liberal, Kansas, and um, did elementary school there, and then did junior high and high school in Edmond, Oklahoma and then went to the University, university of Oklahoma for my undergrad. Um, I did that pretty quick, quick in a kind of a three-year um, blitz <laughs> through undergraduate with a political science major and a, a French minor. Um, and then went straight into a PhD program at the Ohio State University, got my master's along the way. And then my first job, kind of my only interview straight out of, uh, of my PhD was at the University of Kansas. And I was there. I was there for 18 years. Um, At one point, I I ran away. And I went to uh, the Graduate Institute of uh, International Studies in Geneva, Switzerland, I had a permanent job, I could have stayed there. But we we came back to Kansas. um, But that kind of set my interest in in being in Europe, uh, more permanently just needed to have the right fitting job, which kind of came up um, nicely in 2011, uh, I applied for a position, a senior lecturer position at University of Edinburgh, and I've been here since 2011 and got promoted to professor a few years ago. Um, so those are kind of the the moves and the and the big highlights of of what I've. Where I've been, I, my work is on. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but it's on uh, foreign policy and political psychology, uh, pretty generally.
0: I have to say, Julie, I'm I. I think Edinburgh is very lucky to have you. I mean, it's a great program there, and you guys have some fantastic folks out there. And but they were it was a real coup when they got you in 2011, and a loss for us. But they're lucky, and it's a great great city. So I'm very jealous at the same time. <laughs> so I wonder you. if you might talk I mean, you're one of the leading scholars I mean, your earlier work was on leadership styles and you continue to do that uh, work in that vein you've expanded to looking at role theory and I, we'll talk a little bit more about role theory in a minute and you're also one of the leading advocates for the lessons or for taking some of the lessons out of fpa and applying them to ir theory or or bringing those two sub-disciplines into conversation. And, and you have an edited uh, handbook with Oxford, which, full disclosure, I'm contributing a chapter to on the subject of FPA and IR theory. So you are right in the nexus of a lot of really important conversations in foreign policy analysis, both theoretical as well as disciplinary. Before we move to some of those conversations I, I wonder if you could just give us a, a your view of the state of affairs in either the study of international relations or in foreign policy analysis how do you how do you assess the field is it good is it bad which directions are it trend is it trending is it missing important things that you think it should be addressing
1: yeah, okay. So um, big question. But I, I think international relations as a, as a whole field is, is really to talk about hard to talk about because it is so broad, so diverse. I think that's its strength. I think in some ways, uh, international relations, uh, the, the, the field is, is stronger than it's ever been because of that diversity. Um, look back 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it seemed much more narrowly focused on certain debates. So ideas and voices and concepts have really proliferated and that's its strength. Um, I think that's its weakness, too, or its challenge. At least Uh, I think there are still a lot of silos within international relations that don't talk to each other yet are asking some similar questions in similar ways. Um, I think I think IR is more interdisciplinary than it's been in a long time, but I still think there's room for having conversations with other disciplines, even more so. Um, so it's, but you know, how to how to fix that challenge of diversity? I don't know. It's it's got to be organic in some ways. It's got to be researchers reaching across the aisle, so to speak, um, t- to make those connections. But I. I think also institutionally, and and some of this is already happening, so uh, journal special issues like it when you're breaking down those silos, Um, ISA workshops like it when you're doing that, so more of that to encourage conversation, and so that would involve a conversation as I've tried to get started a bit um, between IR and IR theory more specifically and uh the, the subfield of foreign policy analysis which has been around a long time is one of the biggest sections in isa but is kind of often a, a you know a, a minor player in some ways um doesn't doesn't appear in a lot of ir textbooks really as as to reflect that presence um is it thought of IR the- as ir theory often even though I think it, 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 it plays at the same level in many ways. And, and in my opinion, you know, international relations is made up of a lot of foreign policy decisions. So there doesn't mean, re- I, I understand some of the reasons for the disconnect between IR and foreign policy analysis and we can get into that if you want. Um, but the, intellectually, there doesn't seem to be a, a good reason anymore, at least.
0: That's a great segue to the next point that I wanted to talk about, which is this division between foreign policy analysis and IR theory. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why this divide exists, why FPA would seem to be so instrumental to the study of international relations, and yet seems to be an afterthought I hesitate that to put that too strongly, but it seems to me in the discipline that there's been a lot of emphasis on the third image, the structural, the structural level within IR theory. And since IR theory seems to have been dominant in terms of the publication agenda, FPAs and it's more second and first image emphasis has seemed neglected, but it, it's so odd. It's such an odd outcome because so much of what the scholarship on the third image or the structural level is predicated on is, you know, FPA, so Colin Elman's critique Mm of Waltz that is, you can't have a theory of international politics without having at least implicitly a theory of foreign policy, right?
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, I I agree with that. And and not all uh, neorealists would see that you know buy into waltz's argument that that you can't have one without or you can't have one without the other so meersheimer for example says his theory of neorealism is a theory of foreign policy too um it makes a lot of assumptions that foreign policy analysis wouldn't wouldn't make but at least that's a at least that's a bridge <laughs> to foreign policy more than than what so so i think I think the disconnect, and I write about this uh, a little bit in the in an article in International Studies Review a few years ago, and I think it's a long historical disconnect. So that means there's path dependencies built into it and it becomes institutionalized. But I think early on it, it came from kind of disciplinary moves by people like Waltz that did see a distinction between the three levels and, and privileged the systemic level over over others. Um, but I also think at, at, at fault, if we're going to uh, assign blame here, I think
0: for, we should sure,
1: foreign policy analysis deserves some of the some of the blame as well. I think it was for a long time, it was kind of insular looking. It looked first, it looked to comparative politics or even public policy a little bit more for inspiration and didn't really try to reach out to IR. Um, That became even more so probably by the 1980s with and and foreign policy analysis was really political psychology at the time it was it was pretty much dominated by that. And didn't really try to challenge, I mean at that point couldn't really challenge some of the the neo neo debate was really strong at the at the third image, it was um, it's assumptions it's as if assumptions of rationality and unitary actor were just nobody was going to listen to foreign policy analysis and political psychologists um, kind of knocking at the door. It was pretty useless. So I understand why those that disconnect was even strongest during that time. But what I've what I've tried to argue is that once once IR theory changed and started looking at second and first images more and so started to think about, um democratic peace and domestic politics with liberalism or neoclassical realism with Elman's arguments and others uh, looked at you know state motives and um, ideologies within states and then with the rise of constructivism looking saying they're going to take the the agent seriously and looking at ideational aspects um, that 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 disconnect didn't make any sense. and it didn't didn't make sense for IR theory to kind of continue to ignore and and um, you know not not bring in FPA as part of textbooks and part of part of the conversation. and it didn't make sense for FPA to to kind of stop to continue to stop speaking to um, the new developments in in IR theory. So uh, but i'm I'm not sure we're much closer than we were. 20, 30 years ago, I think there's, you know, there's, there's more attention to individuals and personalities in IR now, You every once in a while, you see kind of, kind of that in, in more typical IR journals. Um, but without really much reference to the long pedigree of research that is in foreign policy analysis. And it's, you know, it's not just about referencing it, it's about some of the th- some of the turns that IR theory is making in terms of decision-making and domestic politics um, would be challenged by FPA. It doesn't mean FPA has the right answer, but foreign policy research does has have something to say. So it, it's unfortunate, um, but maybe these things are, are slow to turn around given that they've been uh, operating for so long.
0: I wonder about the disciplinary dynamics here I mean you mentioned Mearsheimer arguing that his is a theory at least in part offensive realism his promulgation of it is at least in part a theory of foreign policy you know but if you look at his most noteworthy scholarship the, the material that's claimed him the spotlight in IR it doesn't it doesn't hold up very well from an FPA standpoint, right? So I remember him at a European conference uh, sometime in the last decade or so. And he, obviously facing a hostile audience, said his argument about the end of the Cold War and the re-emergence of great power competition in Europe wasn't wrong. It just wasn't right yet.
1: Yeah.
0: And... That seems to me particularly the only way you can get away with that is if you are making a structural level argument, not an FPA level argument. So he maybe he wants to have his cake and eat it too. But it seems to me that his reputation and those who want to sort of emulate him is a really a third image structural reputation because on an FPA level, he his work doesn't doesn't stand. Is that unfair? No, I. I Do you th- I'm not asking you to defend John Mearsheimer by any means. But...
1: No, because I agree with you. So um, I think, so that's one example. I, I think he's also t- talked about um, US uh, foreign policy to go into the Iraq War doesn't fit his theory. It was irrational by structural systemic um, explanations, so that that's an anomaly in his theory and that you would need to um, supplement it with additional non-rational decision-making factors, which is what FPA does. So why not, to me, why not begin with those? Um, it's It's not as parsimonious, and I think foreign policy analysis has rejected that kind of gold standard a long time ago. We don't need, you know, the world is complex. We don't need parsimony but we can explain a lot of things that add up to the structural systemic relations that you see um, given with given our approach that's how i would say it
0: does you mentioned parsimony and and one of the things that's fascinating to me about international relations is its pursuit of scientific authority and um, To me, a lot of the emphasis on the third image and the structural is about that pursuit of scientific authority. And if FPA is explicitly rejecting this idea of parsimony and all these, maybe even prediction, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, of greater emphasis on understanding and that explanation, understanding kind of balance, then FPA, a more historically oriented pursuit of knowledge a more contingent to a pursuit of knowledge then it doesn't fit in the in the disciplines pursuit of scientific authority as it, under the simplified model that's you know borrowed from physics via economics right and so is that part of the problem for fpa or am i misreading the situation yeah
1: no, I, I i think that's part of it i think I, I i wouldn't agree with all of those characterizations of fpa and i think this this is part of the disconnect as well and, and the reason why um, fpa has trouble having conversations with with the parsimonious kind of more scientific oriented and the more interpretist um kind of veins of of ir theory because i think I I think FPA does fall more on the explanation side rather than the understanding. Um, I don't think pinpoint prediction is what we're interested in, but forecasting might be because I think there is a there's an inclination in a lot of FPA research to speak to policymakers and policymakers do want some kind of, okay, what so what, right? What's the the Mm -hmm. forecast without Trying to pretend that it's scientifically precise in any way, um, so yeah, I, I think I, I think I think there's a there's a, a, a perception that FPA is positivist because of that, but I think it's not no, right. So I think it it accepts some of the explanation, some of the forecasting that's associated with positivism, but I, but it certainly re- objects that it's a single material objective reality other parts parts of positivism that that gets emphasized right it's very much on the subjective side a lot of fpa is um so it it falls in in between there and that may again that may be another reason that it has difficulties but but these these strong perceptions that it's either one or the other um you know need to be dispelled i think
0: do you think the emergence of populist political regimes like the Trump administration, Johnson government in the UK, others where the personality of the leader uh, seems to play such an important role in the governance and the policy outcomes. Do you think that's going to catalyze some of this shift towards engagement between IR theory and FPA?
1: So I would hope so. I mean, I think it's catalyzed some of the attention. So you have people, um, Dresner, Gentleson, others writing about the importance of leaders. Uh, There was a special issue in IO a few years ago on the behavioral um, revolution and, and turn towards psychology. So there's more interest in it, but what I'm not seeing is them connecting to Kind of long-standing fpa research um we don't want to reinvent the wheel i mean it's not that fpa research has all the answers not not at all and it's not that there's not other ways to do it but but i think i'm hopeful that And I would say that, uh, you know, countries like the UK or the US have always been affected by uh, personalities of of the leaders of the of the prime ministers and presidents. So we don't want to I also don't want to say now FPA is important, whereas it wasn't always before. And and personalities are now important because of these populist regimes. I think, you know, it's a matter of degree and and kind rather than. rather than saying the third image got us all the way to here and now surprise we blip in history, we might need to turn to, to personality. So, you know, a a bit hopeful, but, but um, also skeptical.
0: Right, right. It'll be interesting to see I think the institutional or the intellectual inertia in IR to see whether these real life political changes prompt serious reconsideration by ir scholars or if they do just as you suggest position these things as anomalies to be bracketed in the pursuit of of long-standing intellectual agenda yeah
1: no it will and that i think that's the the default tendency but again it's it's up to people working on um, the psychology of leader personality to come forward and and make their case and say, this is important now and it's always been important. Hmm.
0: So your initial, or not your initial work, but much of your early work focused on leadership styles, which is, as we discussed, come back into relevance. It's always been relevant, but the spotlight seems to be more intense now more of your later work has transitioned into role theory and coming to the subject from a more IR theoretical standpoint, specifically constructivism, there seems to be a lot of overlap between what we talk about in constructivism vis-a-vis identity and what FPA scholars talk about vis-a-vis role theory. So maybe we can have a, a not too long dialogue here about what the difference between these two things are as conceived in the respective literatures, because it's always been a bit of a puzzle to me when I get articles to review that Invoke role theory. I end up thinking to myself, "Well, how is this different from the theorization of identity and constructivism?" I think there is something different there, but very often I don't see that elaborated very clearly. So I, I wonder your thoughts.
1: Yeah. So it's a great question. It's a question that um, I think role theorists get all the time, especially if there's a constructivist in the reviewer pool or in the, in the, or, the or in the audience at the conference, um, and and it. it it should be addressed. I, I think vice versa. I think, I think identity theorists should also uh, think about roles, which role theory research is having a resurgence, but has been around for quite a long time um, in IR. And then of course in, in sociology, even longer. Um, so they are very connected. I mean, it, it's really hard, especially empirically, I think to tease out some of the different um, effects of identity versus roles, and they have some of the same sources. Um, so history, culture, uh, material capabilities can can usually does affect both identity and role. And the two feed off each other, I think. So I think uh state's identity is going to inform its role set. And I think a state's roles will inform its identity. So they are very close and that's, again, if we want to talk about silos, I think that would be a good one to break down is to have have more discussions between constructivist and role theorist on, on these concepts. But I think theoretically and conceptually, I do see them as, as different. Um, and, and I see them as different in, in two or three ways. One is how relational they are. So I know some identity theorists are very specific and very explicit in their own research about talking about identities have to have this relation between self and other. Um, But not all identity research does that. Um, All role research kind of has to, or at least should do that. Roles, Roles have to be relational in a way that I don't think identities So roles have to be relational in the sense that it's a social role so if I if I want to play the role of a teacher, I need others to take up and to to accept that role and to take up relational related roles as learners as students right so the relational part is inherent in roles. Now, you can't be you can't have a faithful ally role without having an ally, right? You can't have a, a special relationship role or middle power role unless there are big powers out there. So so it's, so identities can be relational too, um, but I don't think they have to be. So I can say I have an American identity and I wouldn't well, no, let me think of it this way. Let me use another example. Um, I, I could say I part of my identity is to be a moral person right, but I wouldn't necessarily have to have other people take that up or have an other out there, maybe I think all other people are moral right I wouldn't have to have an oppositional or related relational other out there for, for some identities, not others. Um, so the other the other. Way I think they're different is I think roles have to be taken up. So I, as a state, I can try to play the role of something, but it that role is not really played unless others accept it. Um, where here's where my American identity comes in. So I, I could, I could take up the role of an American as my identity. Now I may have to have my in-group accept that, right, to say that I'm an American. But I don't. But I wouldn't care if anybody else, or I don't have to play that role, that identity as an American without others having to accept it. So I think, I think that's a difference. And then, relatedly, the big difference to me is that roles are much more behavioral than identities. So I, you can have an identity and not have a set of behaviors that are associated with it. Um, so I could have a role, I could have an identity as a moral person, but I may not think of myself as playing a moral role in society. I, I don't, <laughs> I do have an identity as a moral person, but I don't have a role that way. But, but roles come with it, come with them, expected behaviors by, by the self and by alters or others. Um, and I think roles with that behavioral expectation that's tagged to them are, are closer to issues of status and recognition and responsibility, right? What, so, so the, the big difference I think of is, to me identity is who am I? Whereas role is what should I do? Um, mm. And ag- again, very, very much related and there should be more conversations about those. Um, relationships, but you could think theoretically, where they would not, one would not have to depend on the other, you could have an identity without a role and vice versa. And in some cases, they could even be in conflict, right, you can have identity, but have been taken up this behavioral role. um, and, And then you'd expect certain things to happen for the for the actor. I don't know, you, you said a conversation and then I went into my monologue. so what what?
0: No. What, what's your
1: I, take I, on that?
0: Well, let me ask you an, another question, because something, uh, something you said prompted this in my mind. So oftentimes, this, I guess this is related to the, the possibility of identities being relational. So my from my standpoint, identities are also always relational, but maybe the difference is that roles have to have specific external actors who will accept the ego in that role, yep. right? Um, so whereas identity, we can have a sort of generalized other so using your example of a moral, we don't necessarily have to have an explicit external other Im- immoral other, mm-hmm. but just a general sense that this is what immoral others would do or behave or be. And as a consequence, I am able to define myself in contradistinction to the that. Yeah. But also identity you can define yourself in contradistinction to a historical yeah. other. So the famous case being Germany yeah. now defining itself in contradistinction to its uh Nazi uh, World War II Nazi history, right? So it doesn't want to be like itself in the past, is, and that's not possible, really, for roles. If I understand it correctly, is that so? Right?
1: We so there is work on historical roles as well. Um, so so there's the idea that you reject you reject past roles that now you see negatively, or, or others reject those past roles because they see them negatively. So you adopt a current role. Um, in in opposition to that, or at least different from that. Um,
0: But the current role has to be accepted by some other contemporaneous actor. I think it
1: has has to be accepted for it to be a role. You can you can try that role, right? You can and your foreign policy could be um, influenced by the, the your national role conception, what you want to play. But to actually play the role, it has to be accepted by others. Um, and it has to have a, another relational role out there where um, I, I suppose that would have to be in the current, not just historical, but the current um, situation as well. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, I'd straight- accept your distinction, although I, I, I guess I would push to say, is it true that we always have to have an identity um, that has an even a generalized other out there, but but maybe we're just in the minority of situations where the where identity and roles wouldn't overlap, and it's not it's not that critical.
0: Well, I, I'm the other thing that's striking to me is that a lot of the the issues that you're raising, that role identifies right the the necessity of an other to accept the role that one is assuming. These questions in the context of identity, I think, are often broken up. So I'm thinking of usually what we talk about when we talk about identity is social identity, yeah. which is the content of the identity. But the Sederman and Doss piece from many years ago, I can't even remember now, when it came out uh, sometime in the 2000s, I think early 2000s, about corporate identity mm-hmm. and this idea that that constructivists and IR scholars were ignoring the boundary drawing right. around identity groups it seems to me that that points to the importance of the relational other in terms of this acceptance of identity right. and it hasn't been picked up to a substantial degree by constructivists still right I
1: think uh, right. and I think,
0: so I think role draws our attention to that
1: yeah I think I think we're the other point of overlap there is when constructivists talk about socialization, right? So it's others saying you need to be this kind of state that you need to have this identity from norms coming down to influence identity, and um, I mean Cameron Tease has talked about the the where role theory would differ from kind of constructivist socialist identity is that we would say it's not just about identity of who you are, it's about your role, what What are you going to do? And mm-hmm. we would also say it's not just about norms, it could be, I mean, norms could be accepted across, um, across the society, mm-hmm. but others could still be socializing a state to a role. So um, Ryan Beasley and I have talked about Scotland trying to be an aspirate state, right? Trying to be an independent state. Their norms were not in play, right? Scotland owned up to all the liberal, you know, free market kind of norms there were. So socialization from the, from others, from outsiders, was about whether it could play a, a sovereign role and what kind of foreign policy role it would have. So, mm-hmm. so, so I would say role theory opens up socialization a little bit more than at least my reading of some of the constructivist work on socialization that's it's not just about norms and identity and acceptance of those because in roles you can also have pushback on, on what you know what roles are adopted it's it's and it's about more behaviors and um, other kinds of relationships so but that all this to me says that's why these two should be talking more uh, certainly yeah. not competing for Precious journal space but
0: um. yeah no i it's it's fascinating to me because this question or this discussion, not ours specifically, but this dialogue between role theory and identity is fascinating to me because they're so close and yet there are differences not just in terminology but in terms of you know emphasis on on inaction or embodiment, right? That role theory is much more focused on embodiment of the role, whereas identity is less, can be less focused on that. Um, Or identity leaves the question of embodiment or inaction open more, right? There are, it seems to me, identity as conceptualized is more ambiguous in terms of of out- behavior outcomes than role is, yeah. And so these differences in emphasis are quite are quite fascinating to me. Maybe it's just me, but it's quite fascinating because you have these two things that are so very close, but they they can produce very distinctive s- scholarship assessments.
1: Yeah, and I th- I think it, uh, one way forward was, would be to try to find those ca- cases where identity and roles are in conflict, and seeing. You know, or or coming up with different prescriptions of what identity would say, versus roles. So some role theorist, uh, Elizabeth Agastam, for example, has talked about roles as the bridge between identity and and behavior. Um, so so that that would that would um, support kind of your reflections on that.
0: So you you mentioned that your work uh, with Ryan Beasley on Scottish independence, and so it seems to me that once again, I mentioned at the outset that you're sitting right at the nexus of a lot of really important issues, and it seems to me that role theory is has risen in terms of its significance for understanding contemporary contemporary. International events, so you have Brexit yeah. uh, and the the very clear effort by the British state to find some new role in the international system, because its role as some element of the European Union, it purposely and consciously rejected, and so it's seeking you know loyal ally to the United States or Singapore on Thames or whatever, and so it seems to me like role theories keep keyed up in this moment to say, well, you know, look, here's role theory being enacted as we watch the UK trying to fumble around and find a new role. And so it's interesting. I wonder if you have any insights. I know you've written on this, so I wonder if you have any insights on the, or or whether you can tell us what role theory has to say about Brexit or Scottish independence that would enrich our understanding of these things.
1: Yeah, so all, no promises on enrichment, but um, I'll tell you what I what I've done on that. Um, so when Scottish independence happened, I'd I'd just been living in Scotland when the referendum was first announced. I'd just been living in Scotland a few years, um, but it, I was there's there's a national context here um, related to the research excellence framework um, that pushes academics to do more you know take the research out of the so-called ivory tower and t- talk to policymakers. and so i was asked to to talk about the foreign policy implications of of scottish independence and i probably outside of this context i would have well i still was uncomfortable but i would have probably said no i i wasn't i wasn't that up to speed on my scottish history or or the relationship between Scot- scotland and the uk government but but I did, and and one of the reasons I did is because it seemed that role theory, which is what I've been working on the past few years, um, really had something to say there. It had had a way to not ca- certainly not capture everything that was going on in the referendum, but captured some of the things, uh, some of the debates around foreign policy. and And so Ryan and I talked about how there were kind of two role debates going on. One is whether uh scotland um should have a sovereign role at all um and there was internal debates about that and and external positions about that and then relatedly if it had that sovereign role what kind of uh foreign policies kind of substantive foreign policy role would it play would it would it get to play the role of an eu member um would it have to continue to play the role of as a nuclear state you know those kinds of things were were bound up internally and externally and role theory had a is in a unique position to kind of capture those all those different levels of debate um and and so we talked about the nexus between sovereignty and and roles which is again a way to bring kind of foreign policy work with with more ir theory work on on sovereignty and then we teamed up with kai opperman to talk about the same nexus going on in 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 Brexit, so you again have the idea of the, the, the bid for a Brexit was based on sovereignty, that Brussels is taking away the UK sovereignty and we'd have, even though UK is of course a sovereign state, it would have more sovereignty, more independence, freedom um, um, to exercise what it wanted to do in, in foreign policy. So that raised all kinds of questions internally and externally about what does more sovereignty get you? Um, what does what does sovereignty even mean today? Um, and also internally, who has the right to make that? Who who has a sovereign right to make that foreign policy change? Is it Parliament or the referendum or the or the cabinet? Um, all that's still in the news today. Um, and then and then again, if if it has more sovereignty with Brexit, what do you do with that, right? What kind of foreign policy roles? So you mentioned many, like the faithful allies, special relationship, um, great power. So the UK has signaled that it doesn't want to retreat into an isolation role, it wants to be back east of the Suez, um, it's, it's projecting its military in places that it hasn't been in a while. Um, wanted to be leader of the Commonwealth, which has all these colonial overtones that was rejected by, by others. So it, it's a, it's a great illustration. And and we have an article in international relations on this, of how, of this idea that we talked about earlier, how the role has to be accepted. So UK keeps trying out in the the stage metaphor, casting for these different roles, but nobody really is taking them up. Maybe the U S is taking this special alliance, faithful ally roll up a little bit more under Trump, but that has all kinds of other complications and that's not going well either. So it's the ironic part is it's trying for all these non-isolationist roles, but it seems to be forced into the very role that it doesn't wit, which is the isolate, as Cal Holstein talked about 40 years ago as, as one, one of the 17 roles, national roles that are played by states. Yeah. So, so, so it did seem to to be able to capture all these complicated dynamics. Not everything that's going on in Brexit or Scottish independence, but um, and 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 still, still today with I mean, Brexit is, as I said, in the in the news with the internal market bill um, happening, and there's there's parliamentary debate, so internal contestation over how that's going to affect this exiting role from the EU and of and lots of external socialization on the UK about not to go through with that as it's, you know, it will damage its reputation and signal a, a break in international law.
0: It seems to me that the Scottish role hasn't materialized right. yet, it hasn't achieved independence. But it seemed to me that while the EU would be the key external other to recognize such a role, that that possibility was quite strong. Uh, And I think it's even stronger now that the British are, are out of the EU. And that contrasts to me with the failure of the British to, as you point out, achieve successfully inhabit a new role for themselves in the international system. And so I don't know if you want to follow me in this compare contrast kind of thing and speculate as to why the Scottish role seemed primed for acceptance, but the British, despite their efforts at, at multiple roles seemed to be primed for failure. What's driving that divergence?
1: Um, so on Brexit I think it is, it's still early days right there's there, we haven't Brexited yet um, and and a lot of people are waiting to see what that final agreement looks like before maybe take maybe taking the UK up on some trade deals that, that the UK wants but 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 you're right I, I agree with you generally it doesn't look good for you know the future of British foreign policy to to be able to find any meaningful full role, especially one that's not the special uh, special relationship, which is highly contested in you know within the UK and um, it doesn't seem to be forthcoming from the US as anyway. So so some of Trump's America First and trade issues are complicating that relationship. On the Scottish side, so in the in the two thousand and fourteen referendum the big issue was whether the EU would accept that role. And the EU signal did not signal that it would, right? So so if if the EU would have automatically said, Scotland, you're in, that may have changed the result. But it didn't. Um, And it it gave some pretty firm, you know, you you have to go to the back of the queue, you have to apply for it um, to the disappointment of the Scottish National Party. And partly that was because you didn't want to encourage a lot of other secessionist movements around that you and and so Spain was at the forefront there saying that it would veto any Scottish membership um, because of what it feared would happen in in Catalonia. the real question is whether Brexit changed all that, right? So so now that the UK is out, is is the EU, um, would the EU signal more open arms? Should there be another independence referendum? There's some signals like that. And Spain at one point in negotiations over Gibraltar with the UK said it would then not veto uh, Scottish, uh, a future independent Scottish membership, but, but whether you know we don't know what that would, what really would happen. So almost all others were against Scottish independence, even though I mean really it's so small who would really care. But as, as we talked about in the article, it brought up all these other Scottish uh, sovereignty skirmishes right these other ideas in other countries or or people really worried you when know, I was at Brookings a week before the the Scottish independence referendum and there seemed to be this angst about um, this would cause a balkanization across the world um, this this would lead to conflict which it, it didn't it didn't feel that tribal, you know, sitting in Scotland, it didn't, didn't feel that tribal at all. But whether Brexit's changed all that, right? So, so now that that move has already happened, has it, does Scotland look more reasonable in the eyes of the international community? Um, We just, I think it's too early to know. Uh, There's some public opinion moving Inside Scotland on independence, but it's it's it was surprisingly less about Brexit. Um, now the move seems to be more about coronavirus um, um, and how and the perceptions of how the Scottish government versus the UK government has handled this. But again, it's it's not it's not an overwhelmingly move. It's not an overwhelming move to independence, and then whether the UK would agree to another um, referendum. I mean, it says it won't. So we're, we're back into the Spain-Catalonia category for mm-hmm. the short term, at least.
0: Mm-hmm. I have some sort of broader questions about the creative process for you and and some questions about intellectual influence. But before we move on to those, I know that you're working on a new project. And I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, so it's back to looking at leader personalities. So it, it it echoes some of the the themes that we talked about earlier uh, in the in our conversation. Um, it's it's got a great title. It's called Breaking Bad. Um, so it's it's looking at how leaders' personalities change over time. Which there's some work on this, but most of the work in foreign policy analysis on leader personality and foreign policy is kind of a snapshot here here's what the leader's personality is and here's how it helps us explain this decision or that policy or this orientation. But lots of leaders stay in power for a long time Um, and even those that stay maybe a, a, a term or eight years there can be some changes in leaders personality, which includes their beliefs and certainly their experience They may go from novice to you know, more experienced after a few years in, in that in that position. So I'm interested in um, how they change how the personalities change and in a particular direction the the bad direction, right, the, the, you know, more distrustful, suspicious, you know, who gets drunk on power, um, who becomes more authoritarian in their style, and uh, right now, it's, it's early stages of this project, but, but I'm, I've worked on a paper that is bringing together a lot of different areas of scholarship inside and outside FPA that kind of has clues for why this can happen, why it's, I mean, leaders might break good, but most of the research suggests that the bad is the more likely um, scenario, um, and so I've, I've just trying to kind of track. What might be the causes for this what might be the different patterns of breaking bad and then empirically how might we investigate it so that that's where i am right now um so stay tuned it's likely to be my my big project over the next few years um but it it's it seems very timely
0: (laughs) yes it does so there's a there's a substantial psychological uh, underpinning to yeah. this, right, that we that s- psychologists have seen over time or through num- a number of studies that at the longer you are in power, the the, the maxim of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely has some the, has some basis in empirics, right? Exactly, is that exactly. is that the yeah.
1: so so there's so there's there's all this work in organizational psychology on um, not just over time but just the, from the moment that we uh, assume a position of power, our our brain waves change, our 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 you know our empathy declines. Um, we see people as shorter than they are and see ourselves as taller. You know, there's all kinds of those psychological effects but then we also have work on uh, aging um, leaders and what happens when uh, when we all um you know face our own mortality or go through life other life transitions or have aging related illnesses and psychosis um so that can happen and then and then we have uh good some good research on um uh, the psychology of, of learning and belief change right so psychology generally would say that we, we we don't change our personalities but there is some work on why when under what conditions we we would change those those things um, so yeah I I am I'm kind of bracketing all the non-psychological aspects because there's cultural effects there's historical you know regime effects um, And those are all important, but I'm interested in, in the real, you know, micro foundations of, of how leaders change over time.
0: It sounds like a really fascinating project. So I'm looking forward to seeing the material coming out of it. And I think it will have pretty important implications for understanding uh, tendencies of state behavior as you know, policymakers both assume power and as they stay, right, we look around the world and a number of policymakers at the tops of the policymaking apparatus have been there for quite some time. Um, e- you know, even Angela Merkel in a, in democracies, uh, they're not all term limited like they are in the United States. Yeah. So you can see great many leaders who've been around for quite some time. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm looking forward to Thanks.
1: it. Yeah, it's not hard to find examples.
0: I wonder if you just to shift gears here, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the creative process for you. This is something that's endlessly fascinating to me and one that I don't recall very much uh, elaboration on when I was becoming uh, a professor in graduate school, that we, that this is actually an intensely creative enterprise and um, And so I'm fascinated to talk when we, when I get successful scholars like you on the line, so to speak, I'm fascinated to hear what your scholarly or creative process looks like. How do you come up with your projects? How do you think about your scholarship in new and different ways? Because you've, you, as we've discussed, you made this transition from leadership styles to roll and, and now you're back to leadership styles, but it's not in the same way that you were talking about it before. So how do you how do you work through all this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, I think we're often not very conscious of that. Um, so I'm not sure I have a, a great answer for it, but uh, and I, it did dawn on me maybe just a couple of years ago. I, I am creative in the in writing. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer right? and I, I never even thought of myself in a career that way. But but writing is a very creative thing to do and, and um, part of the process I really enjoy most. Um, but, but I think you're asking more the origins of ideas and that. that, I think there are a couple of different tracks for me on, on that. One is the things that are, are more my core research interests. So the leadership style, but also the cabinet uh, coalition politics that I started in my PhD. For the work i do on those it's just it's kind of um what i feel is left undone so once i once i finish a a, a book or, or more likely an article and and i and i write those ideas for future research th- those often just kind of stick with me as like oh that's that's something that's just kind of dangling out there and so uh, you know setting setting myself conference deadlines i'll i'll choose a conference that i want to Pursue that idea, and then it's about reading a lot. Um, you know, thinking through it in in courses. So trying to gear my teaching around it a little bit, so that I can talk through it and explain the background, and that helps me think about ways forward. Um, walking around a lot, especially the last year, walking around a lot, uh, just just thinking about things. And then I, if I have that conference deadline. Then I have, I usually have a, an outline So abstracts I don't work very well with I think they're very hard to write at the beginning but but an outline in my head and on paper um, to think about how are these ideas. Working together. Um, I function by to do list, so I have what, what needs to be done to, to to get this idea towards that conference. And then you know rewriting it, so my my ideas change quite a lot after after feedback or after even just you know you know even when you just practice a presentation you figure out where oh that's that's not working right there's a I need to elaborate this or where's the whole gap um, so those things you know the papers change quite a bit from iteration to iteration um, and then and then sometimes they'll overlap so my work on um, personality, for example, started to overlap with a group of Turkish scholars and I worked on Turkey. but but I, I do feel that that is kind of driven by my main interest at the beginning. There's a whole other track that it's connected to what I do, Of course, those core ideas, but they're things I wouldn't have started on unless somebody specifically asked me to do so. So role theory, um, Cameron Tees and Marika Breuning asked me, an ISA workshop way back in 2010. I didn't, I I knew about role theory, but I didn't work on that. But I was the workshop kind of forced me, I I brought a PhD student at the time Christian Cantier in to write with me. And it forced me to think about what what do I have to say to role theory, and then I started working on that. Um, Same on work on parliaments, I, I wouldn't have gotten into those unless students or colleagues said i'm working on this i think you have something to say can we work together and then what on those co-authored projects the creative process is really um interactive it's it's you know i might have my to-do list but theirs is different and so it's it's about negotiating and and thinking through that but but that's you know coming up with ideas and and then writing them and rewriting them is and editing as you know it, it you, you find your own styles of doing that. Um, but that's just, that's just kind of how I work.
0: So that's, that's quite interesting. So for you, this process is really about being open to ideas coming from the outside rather than, uh, sticking to a specific scholarly agenda and, and remaining within that track. Is that fair?
1: I think I think it is. I think um, I mean, I've said no to some things that felt too outside. um, Mm -hmm. But if if they're kind of close and kind of interesting, and you know, it gets you to travel to an interesting place for a a workshop, or or you get to, you get to start working with people that you've admired on other ways, or it's, it's about socializing your student into the discipline or something like that. You learn a lot if you if you kind of step outside your comforts that not you know it's all still within foreign policy analysis and all that but um yeah i've i've i like i've enjoyed being open and trying new things and, and learning new literatures and trying to make make some kind of imprint that that's that's fun
0: yeah well that makes you i think exceptional because i think i can not name that many scholars who are willing to try new things a lot of them i think My sense is that a lot of folks stay within a fairly narrow band. Um, So just another way in which your work is, is uh, quite uh, inspirational is maybe too strong a word. I don't want to flatter you too much, but okay. So I have a, uh, a question about, I don't know if this is role models or, or, uh, intellectual inspiration, but who's doing work that you admire and who would you say have been the greatest intellectual influences on you? And I asked them, I understand that answers to those things might be completely different or they might be, there might be substantial overlap.
1: Yeah. So, um, whose work do I admire? Well, yeah, that's a broad question. So people that work in my area on, um, on leadership on coalition politics I, I don't think of, I, I don't think about work in terms of single authors or anything I work at I think of a, as some fields of, or research programs um, so uh, you know work in leadership styles by Mark Schaefer and Jonathan Renshaw and Stephen Dyson and Barash Keskin I think all of that is is work that I continue to follow and admire um so some of the work some of the stuff that i'm reading now for the breaking bad project that's new to me is is this organizational psychology work that i talked about about how power affects us psychologically i think that's fascinating because power is such a big concept in ir but to, to kind of get into the psychology of it is really is really interesting um i mean all the greats in role theory cal Holsti, steve walker um Uh, have uh, Cameron Tease have influenced my work there. In terms of kind of more professional mentor and role model, the the biggest one for me is Margaret Herman. So she obviously is is the, the leading scholar, has been for decades in personality. So she influenced me in terms of how I think about that, for sure. But just as a mentor, she she wasn't my the chair of my dissertation committee in P, in my PhD, but she was on my committee, and um, I took a lot of foreign policy analysis courses from her, and then she continued to mentor me in in all kinds of ways just throughout my career. So she's she's in my head, <laughs> she, she, and and you know, she taught me a lot about how to act um constructively but strategically when you review articles when you um set up seminars when you um, design workshops um she's she's she makes things happen not just by happenstance but she thinks consciously about where how can this small thing move the field forward in a big way so I, I, i learned a lot her on that and just she's very i can't do a supervision meeting with a student without her kind of her her desire to build community and social relationships beyond the work um has that just made things fun from graduate school on um so why not be like that Um, so she's 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 a big role model for me and then to go back to an earlier question I think everybody who I co-author there's no I mean you can co-author in different ways you can kind of one person writes half a paper half the paper and the other person writes the other half and you staple it together and I've I've done a few of those but m- most of them and the ones I find more rewarding are the the really true co-authoring where you're you're coming up with the idea together you're um you're you're talking about the outline and what and the argument um you work through that in a it's a slower pace but it's a it it's an interactive pace um at the time of writing it can be you know this preposition or that preposition and you have you know debates for hours over that but that once you work closely um with somebody and especially multiple times so i've I've co-authored a lot with people like uh, Ryan Beasley and Christian Cantier um, and Eshra Chuhadar and Barsh Keskin and Benar Ozgatichatanner. And and the more, the more you do that, that really interactive, the more you just start to think like them. So they've, my co-authors have influenced me at an intellectual level and a, and a style level, because you have to you have to learn each other's way of working, uh, and everybody's a little bit different on that. But, um, but yeah, that 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 that's and that's that's a that's a another advantage of of being open to invitations and to to working with others is you you grow intellectually and you grow as a person. I think. I don't.
0: I don't think I've heard anybody speak about co-authoring in that way. I mean, it's really. It's really inspirational. I wanna go write something with somebody now um, so that I can grow intellectually.
1: Well, we could write something on roles and identity, Darren.
0: Okay, all right, sold. My last question for you is about, it's sort of tied in, I guess, with yeah. your what you mentioned about mentoring, mm-hmm. but, but how would you mentor yourself in the past? If you were to go back in time, you choose the time period could be a year ago, five, 10, whatever. What advice would you give yourself about how to manage your career?
1: Oh boy, Um, that really is a difficult question and it begs the question of whether I would even listen to myself if I I go back (laughs) in time. Um, I mean, to to be kind of snarky about it, I might say, Pay attention to online teaching at an earlier time. So even going back a year, right? Brush up on your online teaching. Um, invest in Zoom, or even earlier, invest in PowerPoint or email. Um, yeah. You know, all those things that have happened. Um, I'd say, I'd say, be ready. Be surprised at what's coming. I I would never have seen my kind of career develop as it as it has. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine at any time What's but even 10 years ago, uh, going back, which is only part of my career, I would say, you know, start packing, you're going to Scotland, (laughs) wipe that look of surprise off your face. So I guess more generally, I would say, do be open to things, I think. I I'm not sure I've learned this myself but every time you're asked to do something I, I I don't know if other people do this but I do sit down in more of a rational way and think about what what are the benefits to me and what are the what are, what are potential disadvantages but looking back I would say I never I could never see some of the benefits I mean maybe some of the hassles too but you just don't know at the time you're making those decisions because there's you know I agreed to write a IR textbook years ago and frankly, I probably did it more for the for the money. Um, but I learned so much, it became such an intellectual, you know, um, benefit to me. And it's the same thing about going to the role theory workshop, I, I, I couldn't have seen how that would have developed. So, so I guess I would say, um, just be open to things and know that you're never going to really have a good handle on What's coming next, and just 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 be prepared for that. I mean, even students that you accept to be a PhD mentor for, it's hard to know what they're going to be like after even after their first year in graduate school. Let you know, let them be open to how they're going to change and grow. Um, and I guess finally, I don't I don't think I ever had real persistence or confidence issues in my career but i would reassure myself you know be persistent in researching what you want to do you know as as we as we began this conversation foreign policy analysis is always a little bit in the minority in the big field of ir research but i i, I shouldn't have and i didn't let go of that that's what i wanted to do my research in so don't you know be persistent and be confident and and also know that the foundation that that you get in graduate school is going to serve you well. You're going to have to learn a lot about the profession that you don't learn in graduate school, but that that grounding is going to, to pay off. So when, you know, reviewer two or a colleague down the hall says something disparaging of, of your work, just, just be confident and be persistent in what you want to do.
0: Wow. Well, I don't think we can top that. So thank you very much, Julie. This has been really fascinating for me, illuminating even. And I I have to say your openness to new ideas and new experiences is something that I think a lot of us would benefit from emulating. So I'm really glad you were able to share that with us.
1: Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and again, I think it's a, it's a great thing. It's a worthwhile endeavor to do. I think these, these conversations, especially in the era of Zoom, um, make, make this profession more personal.